This is an ABC podcast. A simply enormous novel that takes us into 18th century Europe and crosses many other borders besides, and a tiny glowing novella that takes us to the lanes and byways of 19th century Melbourne. Hi, I'm Kate Evans. Welcome to this week's podcast and broadcast edition of The Bookshelf. Cassie McCullough can't be here this week, but she'll be back next time. Luckily, we have readers and reviewers aplenty to help us out as we tackle Olga Tokarczuk's 900-page-long Polish novel in translation, The Books of Jacob, which we counter with a collection of novellas, including Marisa Fazio's Piazza Garibaldi. And at the end of the show, American writer Anne Patchett will be along to talk essays, typewriters, and why reading Snoopy made her a writer. And that, I promise, is not as cute as it sounds. There's real heft to her arguments. But first, let's meet today's guests, weighed down perhaps by a mass of paper. Amanda Laurie is with us, writer and former academic, whose novels include The Morality of Gentlemen, The Reading Group, Camille's Bread and her latest, The Labyrinth, which won this year's Miles Franklin Award for Literature. Hi, Amanda, and welcome. Hello. Bram Presser is also with us, a bookshelf regular, a lawyer and writer whose novel, The Book of Dirt, has won multiple awards. Hey, Bram. Hi, how are you going, Kate? Well, thank you. Now, Amanda, congratulations on the Miles Franklin Award, but also your work is being examined in detail very soon in a two-day symposium at the Australian National University. There are papers on form and community in your writing, myths and absences. What does it mean for you to have your work dealt with like this? Well, it's obviously, it's an honour. Um, no other word for it, really. But it's not just about me, Kate. It's a collection of distinguished scholars who work very hard to keep the study of Australian literature alive in our universities at a time when the humanities have never been under more pressure, at a time, for example, when our oldest university, Sydney University, has just abolished its chair of Australian literature. So it's conferences like this that remain very important, I think. Yes, and taking Australian fiction seriously, that's so important, isn't it? Yes, because the cultural cringe is alive and well, and um, we are now told that young academics, uh, if they're writing about Australian literature, they struggle to get published in overseas journals, which means they can't get their research points up. So there's a disincentive for them even to work within the field of Australian literature. Uh, we could probably have this conversation for for a week. But instead, Bram, I want to ask you about your latest reading project. And it's accidentally a perfect counterbalance in today's show because we've all tackled a simply huge novel. So tell us, what's your reading aim for November? So a couple of years ago, I decided that I would dedicate November to reading novellas, which are, I suppose, my... Uh, favorite form of writing. Um, look, part of it was a practical one that I became obsessed with my uh, end of year tally. And I thought a great way to bulk it up in November was just to read a whole bunch of novellas. But then uh, a couple of years ago, I started doing a read a book a day and review it on Twitter. And so I've, I've carried that on. And it's uh, something that um, other people have now jumped on board with. And I'm hoping to kind of spread the love of novellas. Is there a formal definition for what a novella is? 
probably. I say it's a book under 180 pages. I think it's up to 30,000. I'm not sure. I'm sure there's a technical thing. I, I just look at a spine and say, yeah, that's a novella. And then you open it and it's got like size two font and you realize that it's uh, <laughs> probably a lot more, a lot more hefty than you thought it was. Amanda, do you read and like novellas? Yes, uh, Bram and I are at one on this. It's my favourite form as well. Um, I'd probably extend the uh, scope to between twenty to 50,000 words. Some of what are regarded as the greatest books in the English language are novellas. You think of Animal Farm, uh, The Great Gatsby is a novella. People tend to think of it as a novel. It actually comes in at 47,000 words. It's a wonderful form because it's so economical. The writer has to do a lot in a short space. There's no room for indulgence. Um, There's no room for long, wordy, descriptive passages that on the whole we don't need. The writer has to sustain the tension, narrative tension. They have to sustain the tone. They have to achieve a wholly resolved form in under 50,000 words. So technically it's quite a challenge. Bram, can you help us add to Amanda's list there of favourite novellas? Yeah, look, I mean, the the classic ones, uh, the ones that Amanda was talking about, another one that springs to mind is Of Mice and Men by Steinbeck, which I actually think has got to be almost a perfect book. Then then there's also, it seems to be a form in a a lot of languages other than English. Um, So there's there's books like um, Too Loud a Solitude by Bohemil Krabal, a, a Czech writer, which is really just one of the most beautiful books ever written. Um, the Cremator by Ladislav Fuchs, uh, who I think was Czech. And, and one of my favourites is, is a book called Kilbet Kizer by S. Yizhar, which is probably one of the most powerful novels about the establishment of, of the State of Israel. It's about an assault on, a, on an Arab village by the army. And he was actually an Israeli politician, Yizhar, and it's absolutely jaw-droppingly powerful book. Also, more recently, uh, a book that I, I, it's actually my favorite novella of all time. It's a book called uh, Beside the Sea by Veronique Olmi, who's French. Uh, the most devastating book I've ever read in my life about the failures of the of, of the health system on a woman who is taking her children to the sea for obviously catastrophic effects. Also, there's, there's a, a competition that runs every every year called Viva la Novella, and that always has great winners. Uh, Mirandi Rewo's first book, The Fish Girl, uh, was a, a winner of that. novella. Yeah. Yes, brilliant. Um, but last year, there was a book called Late Sonata by an author called Brian Wolpert, and it is just magnificent. A beautiful book about music, about memory, about family. It's it's just, I can't recommend it highly enough. I could go on for hours, <laughs> so, but I, I better stop there. <laughs> Amanda, I'm wondering how much the novella is something that writers aim for or something that could be made more often by editors. Yes, well, that's probably a whole other conversation about the role of the editor. I mean, the famous American editor, Maxwell Perkins, used to take to um, Thomas Wolfe with the metaphorical hatchet and cut out screeds and screeds and screeds and got away with it because of his status as an editor. But most editors, in my experience, if they're dealing with an established writer, are fairly wary of asserting themselves. But there's also the problem with um, publishers and booksellers. They tend not to like novellas because they say that readers and book buyers feel they're not getting their money's worth. You know, they, they look at a slim volume and say, well, I'll read that in two sittings and it's only a couple of dollars less than, you know, a really hefty book, which might take me weeks. And I've had that kind of feedback often. You know, readers don't like them. 
Well, we know that you do, Bram, and there's a, a novella that is indeed a lovely little object that you and I have both yes. read. It's called Piazza Garibaldi by a Melbourne writer, Marisa Fazio, who also writes poetry. She also writes for theatre and art installations. It's a glowing sapphire blue little book. I wonder if you could describe it for us. It's beautiful. It's set in 1880s Melbourne and really a beautiful evocation of a time and a place. Uh, one of the best I've read, actually, uh, of Melbourne, where you see so much that's familiar, but you also see hints of what's about to come. And it's set amongst the um, Italian immigrant community, or mostly Italian, um, who are really the kind of grist in society's mill. They're, they're dependent on to do all the work that sustains the traditional uh, societal structures. And so we meet, uh, you know, the likes of restaurateurs, labourers, seamstresses. And in the case of the narrator of the first part, a woman called Sapphire, um, a prostitute. Basically, it tells of her almost sort of dashed dream of arriving in Australia to marry and uh, finding that the guy she was supposed to marry has run off with another woman while she was on the boat, essentially over. And uh, she becomes a seamstress, can't really support herself, so takes to, to prostitution and then becomes uh, the, the muse for an artist. And so we flip between her sittings for this artist who she's I suppose, falling in love with as she sits uh, for him and her um, time in the bordello up. It's actually just by where Pellegrini's is now. The second part is the story of Garibaldi, uh, who is a labourer who also has uh, sort of failed in his uh, dreams of immigration and he's too scared to tell his father, who's a general in the Italian army, he goes to watch the Venus fountain in the city uh, where he witnesses an unpleasant altercation, which turns out to be between uh, Sapphire and the artist. And then the two of them connect, essentially, and find, I suppose, comfort in the shared experience of their broken dreams. One of the other things that I like that this novel has done is by taking us into a particular time in history, it's also remapped the city by we mm. see streets and lanes changing, changing their names, but we also are introduced to another way of navigating the city. I mean, what it means to walk through a parkway if you are trying to lure people back to your bordello and handing out little cards. I mean, it's a whole different way of moving through the city. Absolutely. I, my brother used to actually live in that area. So I spent a lot of time walking the space that is um, written about in this book. It, it was quite interesting to think of it being almost a different world and, you know, understanding the way I move between those spaces that are described in it completely differently to what was, uh, how it was written in, in the book. It's quite lovely to see your own city uh, written about in a way that seems slightly alien. Which takes us back to the whole question of Australian literature and why it's important to take it seriously. So that novella, though, is by Marisa Fazio. It's called Piazza Garibaldi. It's published by Merijig Word and Sound Company. But why don't we move away from these tiny novels into something altogether more gargantuan? Let's turn now to the big book, 
that we've all read here on the bookshelf. It's by the Polish Nobel Prize winning writer Olga Tokarczuk, author of many books, but those best known in English include Flights, which also won the International Man Booker Prize for both herself and her translator Jennifer Croft, and Drive Your Plough Over the Bones of the Dead. The new one, or at least the latest to be translated into English, is called The Books of Jacob. It begins on page 955 and it works backwards. The year is 1752 and we're in the town of Rohatan, a city that was then identified as Polish but is now part of Ukraine. Now, Amanda Laurie, can you take us there, both to the place and to your initial reading experience? Well... It opens very briefly with a ghost who is, in fact, the grandmother of the eponymous uh, Jacob Frank. And she is dead, but she's a kind of shamanic figure who sees all after her death and uh, who intervenes in the narrative from time to time. But the opening, uh, which is characteristic of, of what is to come in the 900 pages, is an encounter between a Catholic priest who is the dean of the little town of Rohatton, Father Benedict Schmilowski, and a leading Jewish scholar in the town, Rabbi Shaw. And Father Schmilowski is off to the village on Wednesday, which is market day, and he's seeking out the rabbi uh, who runs a general store in the town and who was eventually to become a devotee of, of Jacob Frank. And Father Szymowski is actually a real person in Polish history. He was the first Polish encyclopedist, and he's in the process of compiling his encyclopedia, which is called New Athens. And he's looking for Jewish books to borrow and someone who can explain them because he has a relatively open mind and he says he wants to learn from the Jewish tradition and its wisdom and says quite tellingly, perhaps they could come to understand each other if people could read the same books, they would inhabit the same world. And this is very much a flag as to where Tukarchuk is going to take us in the encounter between uh, various ethnic groups within this territory, which is constantly shifting in its boundaries. And her desire is in part to map out the many exchanges and connections between them. And from then on, we have 300 pages of basically scene setting, which is a vivid description of Orthodox Jewish life in the towns, in what is loosely referred to as Poland, and several of the Polish, Ukrainian and Ruthenian characters who interact with the Jews at this time. And it's 300 pages before we actually get to Jacob Frank. So why don't we stay in that first 300 pages then, Bram? As Amanda said, this encyclopedist who has a huge library, he has 130 books, but he wants to meet somebody. He wants to go and meet this rabbi who has even more books and more knowledge and set up some sort of exchange. So as he steps into this other household, what's your sense of that world that he's entering? It was really interesting because Tkachuk just describes the life of Orthodox Jewry um, in that time, in that place, with almost an assumption that those who who read the book have that knowledge. There's no dumbing down. There's no so you know you have a a people very steeped in learning, in textual uh, I don't know fidelity, in you know very strong 
devotion to their traditions. It's interesting because that, that first encounter presages, I think, a lot a lot of the book in general, because it's the first instance of just an inability to properly understand one another. To me, this book, which you know, I found it interesting because she Tkachuk refers to a lot of the the very obscure Jewish uh, texts straight away and uh, you know uses a lot of the kind of traditional terminology, uh, the Hebrew terminology. And you know, I wondered for those who who don't actually necessarily know, the words or the text that they refer to. And some of them I had to look up and I have a reasonable working knowledge of those texts. And I do also happen to speak Hebrew. So, you know, for me, that that was kind of a, a strange experience to kind of step into something that was for me so wholly Jewish. But what was beautiful was also seeing the conversation with the priest where you got the sense of that desperate desire for connection without the tools, I suppose, to make it work. And, and, and I think uh, the priest turns to uh, a translator, if I remember correctly, and even that still becomes very stilted and very difficult. And, and I think that gives us a bit of a, a look of what's to come in Tkachuk's, uh examination of language, meaning, interpretation, and uh, almost like clashes of civilization based on an inability to understand rather than any sort of uh, malice or negative feeling of that sort, which, which of course also appears, but is not necessarily the be all and end all of misunderstanding. And you happen to have a, uh, a good control group here, Bram, of other readers <laughs> who in fact do not know Hebrew or Jewish tradition. Um, and of course, the Hebrew reference is there in the very fact that the page numbers of this book are in reverse to make us think about, you know, different languages and so on. And, of course, we're also reading this book in translation. So there are also references, mm. for example, to the Polish Baroque poet Elzbieta Druzbaka, who was also a real person who I hadn't heard of and who is there also in conversation with this encyclopedist. And I sort of like the mm. fact that we were just expected to make mm. sense of it. But I guess it also brings to the fore that question of what a novel like this is doing because it is taking us into a whole series of different cultures and cultural exchanges and languages in the 18th century. So, Amanda, what did this book make you think in terms of what historical fiction is aiming to do? I was very aware all the time I was reading it that it was going to be a very different book if you were Jewish or Polish or Jewish and Polish. And it was going to have all kinds of resonances it wasn't going to have for me. So a reader in my position can only take what's given to them and make what sense of it they can. I didn't mind all the references that I didn't wholly grasp. Um, I thought I took those on trust and I thought, you know, this will become clearer as I go on. Her, her project is to write a political novel, and it's confusing to begin with because she thinks she's going to write a religious novel about one of the great heretics of European history, but in fact she's not. She's writing about the very contested and problematical notion right now of Polish identity, and she wants to show that there has never been an homogenous Polish identity, that so-called Polish culture has always been heterogeneous. It's always been a great mix of cultures and characters and shifting boundaries, um, including under the Ottoman Empire. Once you grasp that that's what she's on about, you start to get her point. 
And the fact that she's she wants to show to contemporary European readers, and specifically I imagine Polish readers, that the Jews are crucial to Polish identity. They are not something that can be marginalised. There is no Polish culture without Jewish culture, is a line from the novel, which is an interesting position for a non-Jewish writer. So once I sort of got my head around that, I was I was okay with what is in in fact less of an historical novel than a fairly straightforward chronicle. One of the ways in which she does that, and something that I kept on noticing and being really taken by, was the way in which all of these different characters and weddings and funerals and movements and travels across borders, they keep on being brought back, it seemed to me, to a whole lot of objects and material culture that referenced trade and culture and politics. So we have descriptions of, for example, the tailor, the rope baker, the fourier in close proximity, all of them Jews. Then there's the baker, whose last name is Loaf. Then there's Luba, the swordsmith, the facade of his workshop, more lavish than anything nearby. And we keep on hearing about dates and halva and carpets and woven fabric and things that travel across borders in ways that, um, for me, as somebody who was, I guess, not familiar with a whole lot of the other arguments, brought it back in a way that made sense to me. But Bram, how would you respond to the way in which Amanda and I are reading this book? Part of me almost wishes that I didn't have the, almost the baggage that I come to it with. Um, I grew up having learnt these stories from a particular perspective, the stories of, uh, you know, false messiahs, of of the ways in which uh, interpretation works, stories to do with blood libels, uh, which, you know, play a very big role in this book. Like when I was reading this, a lot of that was sort of filling in the gaps in a more kind of lively uh, historical narrative than what I'd been taught. And so I, I found myself kind of attached to that aspect of it and sometimes wished I almost wasn't, but like in terms of what you were just talking about now with with objects and all that, I found that I don't know whether I overread it. And this is again the problem coming to it with the cultural baggage, um, almost being a metaphor for the Jewish presence in Poland. That you know it gets moved around, it gets lost. Uh, you know things appear, reappear. There there are constant threads of of, of continuity of object, and and that in a way. Uh, represented to me Judaism as it exists in Poland and as it has existed in Poland. And further to Amanda's point, uh, you know, it, it's definitely worth considering that this book got Tokarczuk in a considerable amount of trouble because there is a, a, a very controversial law about in Poland, uh, I think it's called the Polish National Law, uh, where, you know, there is a particular narrative, Polish narrative, uh, that must be adhered to and to write something counter to that narrative is actually essentially uh, illegal. So Tokarczuk making the point she does about uh, Jewish history, uh, Polish history being inextricably linked with, uh, with, with Jewish history and the Jewish presence, particularly around the Second World War. And, and that's where it becomes the biggest concern for, for the Polish government. Uh, any sort of suggestion that there was uh, Polish complicity or, or, or collusion uh, with, with the Nazis is the great uh, heresy, I suppose, uh, <laughs> to borrow from this book. This book does visit that towards the end. So I just think it's, uh, for me, that was 
really interesting to see to see her doing that and because she was writing a political book and because you know it's you know this is historical fiction that is very much about the present because you know it also looks at things like you know uh, the cult of personality uh, which is across the world uh, a, a very big issue uh, the problem of of leaders uh, who who become about themselves rather than about uh, the people, stuff to do with uh, clash of civilizations, as I said before. These are all things that are uh, that are very current. And so that's sort of how I read it, uh, you know, as, as very much a metaphor for, uh, and this is usually the case with a lot of really great uh, historical fiction, I think, is what you read in the historical fiction is actually teaching you more about now than it is about then. And as well as confronting right at the end the whole question of what happened to Jewish people in World War II in Poland, there are other pogroms and moments of yes. violence that appear all throughout the book. There's references to things that happened in the 15th century, but there are things that are happening in this 18th century period. But the thing that we're not explaining for people who don't already know the story is that there was this leader whose name was Jacob Franks or who became known as Jacob Franks, who was like a, a charismatic leader, supposedly a messiah, and not knowing the story, Amanda, he seemed to be both a sort of cult leader and an unlikely one. How did he appear off the page to you? I'll just backtrack a bit to your point about the representation of the material culture because I think this leads into the characterization of Jacob Frank himself. I thought the immense amount of time and detail she expended on that was partly to show how integral to Polish life Jewish trade and Jewish crafts and skills were. But the point was that they had no rights and they couldn't own land. They couldn't farm. They couldn't own property. So they had to concentrate their focus and their skills in particular areas, which the rest of the population depended on heavily. But it created, of course, anxiety and fear because their position was basically so unstable and threatened at any given point because they could not own land. And this becomes a crucial issue much later in the novel when Jacob Frank encourages his followers to convert to Christianity or a form of Christianity, which would then give them rights. And it also, I thought, was partly her attempt to explain the appeal of the Messiah because the Messiah is going to be a figure that rescues you from this endless persecution uh, and this punishing God. And some of the characters, in fact, say there must be a better God than this. There must be a better life than this. The Messiah will deliver it. And so in some ways, the novel makes sense of that susceptibility to a cult of the Messiah. It's not a kind of crazy thing. It has its own internal logic. So then along comes to begin with, a fairly youngish man. I think he's about 30. He's a trader in textiles and precious stones. He spent a lot of his time in the Ottoman Empire. He's trained under former Kabbalists, including one who also claimed to be a messiah. And he announces that he is a, a reincarnation of the biblical Jacob, and he is the new messiah. And he holds out this promise to his followers, who I think in the end amounted to only about 20,000, but it was significant at the time. Now, the problem in the novel is that clearly in real life, Jacob Frank was a very compelling and charismatic figure um, who taught radical doctrines, many of them very appealing, even by today's standards very appealing, for example, greater rights for women. 
But in the novel, he's a cipher. He's actually a bit on the dull side. He doesn't come across as being particularly interesting. We don't see him performing miracles. She doesn't take us into the psychological experience of his followers, um, what it is that he's giving them, how they're responding to him. Um, he kind of floats through it as a two-dimensional figure, and I never believed in him. Yes, that's interesting because I struggled to see why he was so charismatic, even though we were told that he was. I mean, I was interested, there was a description of the way that he spoke. And so as a trader, um, they said he always uh, spoke with a slight accent and always sounded like a foreigner. He spoke the speech of the, the road rather than the speech of the temple. And I thought that was interesting. But in terms of following characters through a novel, I was much more interested in so many of the other characters. Bram, was he an important character for you or an important idea? I think he's more an idea because there's, a, I guess, a teaching um, in Jewish thought uh, which says that, you know, into every generation a potential messiah is born. And Jacob Frank's appearance was on the back of, as uh, as Amanda said, probably the, the best-known false messiah in history, um, Shabtai Tzvi. His followers, or people who who still sort of had a longing for him to have been the Messiah, were looking for someone new. So Jacob, to me, was just the person it landed upon. It was the idea of Messiah that was important, and he was the one that, for some reason, drew the attention of of those who were looking. And I kind of agree that he he's not really presented in any greatly compelling way. And e even from those who are his most kind of fervent acolytes, they talk rapturously about you know, the idea that he is Messiah, but not anything about him that is, you know, particularly messianic or or uh, miraculous or any of the things that, that you might gain an understanding of, of what it was that actually drew people to him. But uh, I sort of understand that at a time of great kind of religious tumult, um, there would be people looking for someone to essentially lead them, as it were, to the promised land, that kind of, uh, not not talking about, you know, the actual promised land, but this idea of a, a promised land of, of freedom, of uh, religious freedom, um, proper belonging in the world, safety. So yeah, like I, I never got the sense that he was someone that I personally would have followed, but uh, the I, I fully understand the, the longing for Messiah. I know people even now who still live with longing for Messiah. So I understand that that kind of psychology. The other thing about this book, of course, is that it is 900 pages long. <laughs> so we haven't got a hope of talking about the ins and outs of the plot, the characters, even all the ideas in it. But, I mean, it's a 900-page novel, Amanda. So too long? Long enough? What did you think? I wouldn't call it a novel. I'd call it a chronicle. Mm. The novel has a plot. This doesn't have a plot. It, it's a narrative over time, over about 30 years, of certain historical events. Characters are roughly drawn. There's very little of their psychology. Um, a lot of the important developments are baffling and ambiguous. Sometimes the ambiguity is appropriate. For example, the question of whether Jacob Frank's followers are genuine converts to Christianity or whether they're just fed up with being persecuted and want to have some civil rights, she leaves that hanging. To me, it wasn't engaging in the sense that it drew you in 
in the way that, say, a Dostoevsky draws you in and you feel this very intense focus, this very intense mystical space opens up and you're drawn into it. You're always very detached. It's like reading a history. So then the question arises, what do we want from an historical novel that we can't get from a good history? What do we expect the fiction writer to deliver? And for me, what I want is to take us into the intense personal psychology of the protagonists. And I didn't feel she did that. Bram, what about you, both the length and the language, which, of course, is in translation? (laughs) I thought it was magnificent as kind of this, I don't even know what I would describe it as. Uh, I have to say, I struggled with the first part. I struggled to get into it. But once, once it sort of took off for me, I actually thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I found a lot of the theological debates, a lot of the historical uh, waypoints were for me quite exciting to read. And and, and I, I think she did that really well. One thing, given that the way I'd learned, I'd learned a history that was devoid of women. And so to actually get strong female characters in a history that I had known as almost uh, exclusively masculine was was really interesting as well. You know, 900 pages is a long book. I think if you would ask me at the point where I was 250 pages into it, I would have maybe said, yeah, this is this is going to drag for me. But at about, the, you know, 350 odd pages in, it just took off. And I, at that point, almost couldn't get enough of it. But uh, that said, you know, you really have to commit. It, it, it asks a lot of you. I like the fact that it asked a lot of me and yet was not as daunting as I thought it was going to be uh, because it almost sounds like a punchline when you say Polish novel in translation read backwards about (laughs) an 18th century, you know, religious crisis. It sounds like a punchline. And so it was less earnest and less of a grind than I thought it would be. But Mm. I suspect, Bram, you and I read it in very different ways and it was, I started to keep paying attention to all the crossing of borders and all of those objects and they were the things that helped me track my way through through it. But I have to say, I'm glad that I read this book. It's Olga Tokarczuk's The Books of Jacob, a novel translated from Polish by Jennifer Croft and published in Australia by text. Thank you so much to both of you for your generous reading today. And before you go, I wonder if you could make another book recommendation for us. Amanda, what has swept you off your feet recently? A very unlikely book about the attempt by the various regimes of the French Revolution to completely reinvent French culture. A new calendar, new festivals, abolish the monarchy, abolish the church, take the church bells down and and melt them. It's the most extraordinary narrative of what happens when you try and reinvent the world. It's by the French historian Mona Ouzouf, that's O-Z-O-U-F, and it's called The Festivals of the French Revolution. And it sounds like it might be um, scholarly and dry, but in fact it reads like a novel. I love an unexpected book that just sweeps you up and sweeps you along. Now, Bram Presser, apart from your novella project, what's one book that has rocked you back on your heels this year? Uh, the book that's really blown me away the most this year, I think, has got to be um, uh, Smokehouse by Melissa Manning, which is just this beautiful collection of short stories and and a novella. So it's a novella split in two uh, with short stories in between that tell of the various characters um, who come to this small town in Tasmania 
to make their lives, some of them to escape their lives, some of them to uh, remake their lives. And I, I, ju- I just read it with sort of my heart was full, my jaw was on the floor, and it's just probably the most beautiful book I've read this year. And it has a beautiful cover. Oh, I haven't <laughs> yet read that, but people have been recommending it. So thank you for that. Bram Presser, Amanda Laurie, thank you so much for joining us on The Bookshelf this week. Thanks for having Thanks, us. Thanks, Kate. Amanda Laurie, her latest novel, The Labyrinth, won this year's Miles Franklin Award for Literature, and Bram Presser's novel, The Book of Dirt, has also won multiple awards. I'm Kate Evans. Don't go away, because there's another writer coming your way soon. Finally on the bookshelf, Radio National's weekly podcast and broadcast review program, the latest book by American novelist and essayist Anne Patchett. Her books include Bel Canto, State of Wonder, The Dutch House, which we read last year here on the bookshelf and which I liked immensely, and her non-fiction memoir of a friendship, Truth and Beauty, about her intense relationship with the late poet Lucy Greeley. Now, that's a book I think about more than I ever expected to. Now, Patchett writes long essays for publications like The New Yorker, and her latest book, These Precious Days, is a collection of those essays, although they've been partly rewritten, but it also includes entirely new ones. There are stories of relationships, family, objects, loss... Many are about reading and rereading, and there's a novella-length piece near the end that's about an unexpected COVID encounter, and that's the titular essay, These Precious Days. It has a heartbreaking coda and also goes right to the heart of the ethics of being a writer. So if Olga Tokarczuk's Books of Jacob was about reading with effort, grappling with meaning, pushing you to try harder then this one is about a clean and clear type of reading, sharp and clever. I spoke to Anne Patchett from her home in the US. Anne Patchett, thank you so much for speaking to us on The Bookshelf. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Congratulations on these precious days. And I have to confess, while I was reading it, I was also reading a novel that I was really struggling with because there were too many cliches in it. It it sort of unmoored me. And so when I stopped to read your essays and the, the sort of clarity, it helped anchor me again as a reader. That's really nice of you to say, and and I'm sure that your reading life is much like mine, which probably 92% of my reading life is based in obligation and work mm. because I co-own a bookshop. And I find that sometimes there's a book I absolutely have to read. It's not working for me, and it grinds my reading to a halt. And then I'll find something else that I can connect to. And it is like getting my engine restarted. So if that's what the book was able to do for you, I'm glad. It did, because I had been sighing and groaning <laughs> aloud with the other one, which is... I read that. I just, whatever it was, I read it too. <laughs> <laughs> Now, this collection of essays, you frame it partly as an argument about death or resisting it, where with fiction, when you're writing fiction, you grapple with the potential loss of characters, and in essays you don't. Can you explain the sort of argument that you're making? Well, it is a really bizarre thing, but every time I write a novel, once I'm really into it, about 80 pages or so, I start to worry about dying. 
in a way that I never think about it in my normal life. But if you have a whole cast of characters, you know, anywhere from six people to 60 people, and they only live in your mind, if, if something happens to me, if I step off the curb and get hit by a car, I take them all with me. I, I take the whole cast of characters, the whole world of the novel with me. So I always feel when I'm writing a novel that I have to be very careful. Whereas if I'm writing essays, if I'm writing nonfiction, and I'm writing about something that really happened. So there are other witnesses to the events. There are other people who could finish the story for me. Or it's just that the story really did happen. Therefore, it is out there in the universe. Fiction is only happening in my head. Does that make any sense? It does make sense. But it's also interesting as a way to frame the collection, given so many of these pieces circle death and dying and loss, even though they do return to the, the lives and memories and objects that are, that are left behind. Right. It is, uh, I like to say, a super cheerful book about death. <laughs> but um, I wrote it during the pandemic. And I, I don't know anybody who wasn't sitting around thinking about death during the pandemic. It was, it was in the air. It was in the water. It was what everyone was grappling with. And so it informed everything that I was writing and doing, and not in a morose way way, just in a way that I think is actually very helpful to remember that this is a finite experience for all of us. And so what am I going to appreciate? What am I going to love about my life? The other strange thing that the pandemic has done has put is to put us in a different relationship to our stuff, because we're looking at it. The objects or books or detritus of our lives. But for a writer, what does an object like a typewriter, so what does a typewriter mean to you? Well, I, I have more than one beloved typewriter, but let me just say there were two that I really loved. Uh, one was my grandmother's little manual. Um, it was called a Adler Tippa, and it, it wrote in cursive. It still does. It's upstairs in my office. And because my grandmother liked it so much better than her handwriting, every single note that she ever had, she, she typed. And so I invest this typewriter with its cursive script with the love of my grandmother. And then the other typewriter was my Hermes 3000, which uh, my parents bought for me when I went to college. And it was just a sacred object. It was my best friend. Uh, I brought it home at, at Christmas for the holidays because I couldn't bear to be without it because I really believed that whatever I was writing, that the typewriter itself got half the credit. Um, I gave it all sorts of magical capabilities. And what happened in the story that you're talking about, how to practice, which was after my friend's father died, I started really thinking about getting rid of the things that I owned. And then at the very end of the big clean out, I met a child who longed to have her own manual typewriter. So I think, well, okay, I loved my manual typewriter. I, I couldn't have loved it more, but it's been sitting in the closet untouched for 35 years. 
I'm not doing right by the typewriter. And that's the other weird thing, because then I start thinking I am not doing right by the typewriter. And then I think you really do need to get rid of the typewriter. (laughs) But also there's something lovely about having that girl in the story as well, because there's that sense of all the possibilities and the longing and and the books that we hope she will write. Absolutely. And and also how for children one kind act can really change things. It's so amazing to me that after I gave the typewriter to Charlotte, now I get a typed note from her from time to time, and she says, I, I want to be a writer now. Now I have a typewriter. Now I want to be a writer. And because and, you saw her, you saw her as a possible writer. Right. It, it's just fantastic. And I remember the little moments of kindness, and you know, there were a million of them, when I was growing up, but someone would do something nice or notice me, see me as a, as a separate entity, a real person, and pay attention to me and make me feel grown up and important. And, and those are the moments at which the world shifts. And they also shift in some ways to the the actual physical practice of of writing and that sort of embodied memory, which I think is is there in so many of these stories. But I'm also interested in books themselves as objects because they're such intimate objects, Um, you know, because we, we hold them, we might take them to bed, we can carry them around. And so I wonder, as both a reader and as the owner of a bookshop, what do books mean to you as physical objects? I'll tell you, I am very disciplined about this question (laughs) because, again, I'm sure this is similar to what goes on in your life, but nary a day goes by that I am not sent a book. And sometimes I am sent five books. Yeah. And it is not possible to romanticize them. Books are replaceable. I own a bookstore. I know that for a fact. And so if somebody comes into my house and they want a book, I give them the book. There are maybe five books that I would hesitate to give someone else. And it, you know, they're the books that my father wrote me a note in or that uh, I have a book that Eudora Welty signed. And even those, honestly, I would give away because what a book has to give me, it has given me. I read that book. I absorbed the knowledge, I absorbed the talent and the thinking. And what I wish for the book is to go on at very much like the typewriter and give that life to someone else. I have a lot of books in my house, but a scant fraction of the number that I would have did I not keep them going in and out the door constantly. But because, of course, books, the stories in them, they embed themselves in us. And you, I mean, you describe, for example, you and your friend Lucy Greeley trying to memorise the first chapter of 100 Years of Solitude. How did you go? Um, It didn't go very well. We didn't (laughs) get very far. But it didn't matter that we did it. It only mattered that we tried. And it was such a, it is such a happy memory. I could close my eyes and see us in that ratty, 
freezing little living room in Iowa City, one of us holding the book and one of us working on the sentences and then passing it back and forth. And, and that's that's what matters. Not, not that we were actually trying to commit Marquez to memory, but that in our friendship and in our love for literature, we had that exchange. Now, you mentioned there um, a book signed by Eudora Welty. So what does the writer Eudora Welty mean to you? Um, I was a great fan of Welty's when I was a child because she was alive and because she was a woman, which when I read her in my eighth grade reader in English class, she was the only person who was alive and the only woman in that book. So amazing to think how far we have come on that front. Um, so I, I made a little fetish out of Eudora Welty. And then when I was 16 years old, my mother gave me the collected stories of Eudora Welty for my 16th birthday. And not long after that, Eudora came to Vanderbilt University um, in Nashville, where I live. And I went to hear her read with my friend Tavia, who is all over this book. And it was the first reading that I went to. So in all of these different milestones, she really did play such a role in my life. And then when she died, and I was in my late 30s when she died, but I heard it on the radio. And I just remembered what she had meant to me when I was growing up. And I decided I was going to get in the car and drive to Mississippi. It's about a five-hour drive and go to her funeral. Um, and it just, I mean, like I turned the radio off and went and got a dress and got in my car and went. And going to her funeral was, uh, it was a beautiful experience. And then I went to the graveside because I had met some people, I knew some people there who invited me to come to the graveside. And because of that, I met Eudora's two nieces, Liz and Mary Alice, her two remaining living family members. And because of that, I was then invited to join the board of the Eudora Welty Foundation. It's just one of these things that just keeps on going in my life. And because of those people uh, that I met at her funeral, I have had this wonderful association with, with the Welty legacy. And in fact, a couple of years ago, I wrote an introduction to the re-released collected stories of Eudora Welty, which I had been given at 16. And so I, I sort of feel like our fates are forever bound together through these coincidences. And you revisited her because of an introduction that she had written as well. So that sense of readers as read writers as readers connects you too. Yes, because I was reading Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse and I didn't realize when I bought the copy that Eudora Welty had written the introduction to To the Lighthouse and it is this wonderful loop. There are many ways in which you explore what that loop is and how it works, but just keeping with the sort of reading and writing side of it. So not long after, or it might even be immediately after your essay on Eudora Welty. And so I'm busily thinking about, you know, writerly influences and what it means to be a reader and so on. And then you also describe how you were given a model for both reading and writing by Snoopy. 
Yes, I was. That's a wonderful wonderful (laughs) story about how that came about. Uh, There's a man that I know named Andrew Blonner, and he wrote to me and he said, I'm doing an anthology of writers and illustrators writing about peanuts. And I wondered if you would write an essay for the book. And I said, you know, no, I wouldn't be interested in writing an essay unless I could write about Snoopy and you're never going to give me Snoopy. And he said, no, I'll give you Snoopy. You can have Snoopy. (laughs) I'll give you Snoopy. And honestly, I really, I felt like he was saying, no, you can have George Clooney. Yeah, sure. He'll take you to the prom. I was so overwhelmed. And it was at that point, I, I knew how much I loved Snoopy. But I never really had stopped and taken inventory of all of the things that Snoopy had given me. And I got a giant collected Peanuts strip cartoons and I started to read them again as I had read them faithfully every day of my childhood. And what I realized is that all my ideas about being a writer could be traced back to Snoopy because Snoopy, along with being a hockey player, a tennis player, and the head of the Beagle Scouts and a World War I flying ace and all of the things Snoopy did. Snoopy was a published writer, and he was always on his doghouse typing out. It was his dark and stormy night. But it wasn't just that. He mailed his manuscripts in. He waited to hear back from editors. He saw his work go out of print. He got rejections. He tried again. Charles Schultz really knew what he was talking about because he mapped out a life that was true. It was exactly the way things went as a writer. And I realized that my expectations and my ability to persevere against odds really could be chalked up to a cartoon beagle. (laughs) And Patchett, thank you so much for speaking to us. I am so glad that I had the chance for us to talk again. And I hope the next time it will be in person. Anne Patchett's These Precious Days is published by Bloomsbury. I'm Kate Evans, and that's it for this week's edition of The Bookshelf. Cassie McCullough will be back next week, and we're looking forward to reading Christos Chokas' new novel, Seven and a Half, as well as Violet Coopersmith's Vietnamese-American story, Build Your House Around My Body. Many more books ahead of us, so let's meet at the bookshelves again next time. <laughs> <laughs>